And I think there's a real wound for the masculine around, like, we feel like we have to get our life all together and then present ourselves to the world. And, you know, that's, that's really, like, that's really uh, hindering our evolution as an individual and collectively. So, so life, you know, life humbles us one way or another at, at, a, you know, at a certain time. Welcome back to another episode of Dear Men. I'm really excited about this one. I've been looking forward to it for a while, um, partly because I have a lot of admiration for my guest, and I feel like he is one of the men in my life that really embodies the healthy masculine, so I'm really interested in hearing about his work and all the things that he does, because um, I really want more of that in the world, and that's kind of what I want to transmit here. So um, today we're talking about masculine presence. And we have with us Johnny Blackburn, who is a coach, an author, a speaker, a facilitator, all about helping people awaken the potential they have within themselves in work and life and love, because who doesn't want that? So, and like I said, he's a good friend, and I'm really happy to have him here, um, yeah, to share his gifts. So thank you for being here. Honored to be here. Um, So... Yeah, there's a lot that we could talk about in this arena, but I was hoping that maybe we could just start and hear a little bit from you, like what has been your own journey in terms of masculine presence? Because I'm guessing you weren't always the man I know you to be now. Came out like this. <laughs> it's just, have you seen, have you seen just the curious, perfect. Curious case of Benjamin Button. I've been going in reverse. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't be surprised with you if that was true. I could buy it. I could buy it. I could buy it. No. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in the country and we played out, played outside a lot with our siblings and then, um, you know, played sports in high school and, um, yeah, I mean, there was, there was a conventional, like, kind of kid growing up on, on a lot of levels. And then I started to have some <clears throat> profound experiences at 16 and then I, I started to kind of read in secret, um, different spiritual and wisdom traditions and I really didn't know how to integrate it, like... I was partying and having a lot of fun on level on one level and you know like handling my studies on another level but I, I had this kind of secret life this secret spirituality and I, I really didn't know I didn't have anybody to talk to or know how to kind of integrate it into mm. like uh, those other things so that's how it started and um, you know I mean I had my unconsciousness and, and my like playfulness as a kid and um, but I always had a I always had a deeper curiosity for life. I think um, that's one. That's one like a, a through line that's been there all along. Like yeah. As even as a young kid, like talking to the older people, and um, yeah. And being interested in that stuff. And you grew up yeah. in the Central Valley of California, yeah, right? Central so California. right. So kind of like uh, rural setting. Yeah, Definitely yeah. not I mean, a city. We have neighbors for even a couple miles, so we could just. It was as a young kid, it was fantastic because. My brother and sister and I, we could just ride our bikes and mm. be gone for hours and ride for miles. And we just had to be home by dinner. And it was, it was so safe and free. Um, when I was in high school, I wanted to be closer to my friends. 
But then I think I went to college in L.A., and when I would go back to visit, I I started to realize the peacefulness and, like, the gift of it. Mm-hmm. So. And was the fact that it was kind of a conventional setting, is that why you said it was a secret life? Like, what what were you afraid people would say or do no, if you... I, mean, I think I've always had an attune... Like, I really try to get people's world in attune to mm. where they're at, and so I kind of on some level subtly ping what they're, like, even just by their openness or, or the way that they speak, like, what they're sort of capable of getting. And so, mm. um, you know, I, I had a few people that I would that I would speak to, and, like, I, I remember at times getting into philosophical discussions and stuff, but um, then I also had, like, conventional parts of me, too. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, it was the natural developmental process. Um and then I had a serious injury in, in college. Well, actually, I remember asking, sort of like sitting on my balcony on the, the, watching the sunset one evening, and like I had an experience before that I was like, you know, there's got to be more to life than this. You know, I was in management consulting and like the, in L.A. in like a very, you know, like very nice uh, career trajectory in future. Corporate America. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just realized like a, lo- a lot of people weren't weren't happy and really stressed and like, even at that time, even as a younger, like, I, I had this sense of, like, this sense of balance of life. Um, and I really liked consulting, and I, I liked kind of organizational development and change, and it was really kind of in a way what I still do now, but on an individual level with organizations. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, soon after that kind of asking life, like, there's got to be more to life, this, I had a serious injury, um, I had a stand for a whole year, then I was completely floored after a... Um, a failed surgery. Like I tried this experimental surgery, and I went really bad. Um, was this your back? Was yeah. this okay? Yeah, read which is debilitating. Rooms, like, this surgery that they don't do it anymore because a lot of other people had the similar experience. Like twenty-two hours a day on the floor, I could stand for five minutes at a time. Oh my god! I mean, literally, like everything taken away. Was so, this how long did this go on for? Was this like months? Four years total. Four years. I mean, one year standing. Uh, one year I couldn't sit down, only a little bit, so I was just standing. I mean, I was in, at that time I was at the beginning of my career, so I was in the cubes. And so they called me Caddyshack. Because, like, you walk down the aisle, you know, there's the offices on the sides and the cubes in the center. And then you just see this, like, head sticking up. So I was, like, early adopter of uh, Standing of desks. desks. Wait, so you were working at this time? How did yeah. you sleep at night? I mean, I could lay down or stand up. Oh, okay. So there was no time. there was no sitting. Okay. And then, but then, I mean, this isn't. It wasn't getting better. I was doing physical therapy and chiropractic, and you know, I was like, "Hey, I'm I'm young and I have a bright future. I have new potential, but I can't I can't do it like this." So the, the PT wasn't working. So I tried this experimental surgery. Mm. Um, I mean, looking back on it, the transition was the best thing that ever happened to me. But you know, I. I don't know if I would have... On, on some level, you say, wow, maybe that surgery wasn't such a good thing. <laughs> maybe I could have awakened another way. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I mean, really imagine, like, you can stand for five minutes at a time. And if you stand too long, it's two days of flaring up the nerve. Oh, my God. So, I mean, I literally laid down all day. I would get bed sores. And, like, it was, it was like, the most humbling time of my life. Um... And what, what helped? What eventually well, got you out of it? Well, I went three days, woe is me. You, you went three days? Yeah. That's it? Yeah. 72 hours. Well, and then you were like, I got to get over this. I wasn't even <laughs> fun to be around myself. <laughs> so I was like, well, the, hey, there's some really amazing people helping me. And uh, which I'll, I'll say for a masculine wound, I remember a conversation a little bit before I got injured initially. And I was like, 
I don't know who I was telling, but I was like, ah, you know, I don't need anybody. I can, like, I'll always, like, I'm just competent and I can take care of myself. Oh, interesting. And I think there's a real wound for the masculine around, like, we feel like we have to get our life all together and then present ourselves to the world. And, you know, that's, that's really, like, that's really uh, hindering our evolution as an individual and collectively. So, so life, you know, life humbles us one way or another at, at you know, at a certain time. So, uh, anyway, so I'm like, I went through three days and then I realized like, okay, for some reason, like I just contacted a deep part of myself that said, all right, for some reason, this is happening. I don't know. And I'm going to make the best of it. Like, this is where I like, this is what, what's here. And, uh, so I said, okay, you know, what are the things that I always said I wanted to do when I had more time? I mean, mm -hmm. I had an infinite time, mm -hmm. definitely physically limited, but so you know, I, I started, I would read all day and then I would get up and take breaks and walk and do these little ab strengthening exercises that my physical therapist has given me. And, um, I was learning to meditate and then for dessert, I would watch a classic movie every night. Mm -hmm. And, oh, I made sure I, wa I walked outside and watched the sunset every day. Mm -hmm. And, um, so that was like, you know, in a year, almost like in a prison kind of thing. Uh, it's a lot like solitary. I mean, much. I guess you had yeah, friends. Much. That would my come grandmother over, but... was an angel. She would come visit me every day. Um, and, I mean, we, we were in the country, so there's not a lot of people there, you know. So it was, in a way, solitary. My parents were gone during the day work, working, and so, yeah, it was a very um, very internal experience. But I was reading and, and meditating, and um, then I ended up meeting somebody. Uh, I left the house, like, eight times, I think, that year to, to go to doctors wow. and stuff. It was very solitary. Then I ended up meeting somebody that sort of inspired me to, it was a sort of an ally that inspired me to consider things from a different perspective. And at that, during that time, I was sort of waiting, hoping that a surgery would fix me. And then I started like, um, I just opened up to this world of alternative medicine. So I just started strengthening and stretching and doing yoga and, and biofeedback and like really learning to feel my body, learning to relax my muscles, learning like to feel what's strong, what's weak, what's tight. Um, like I would just stretch every day and like really rebuild my body from the ground up. Mm. Um, I started to figure out what foods affected me and like, uh, you know, what foods were causing inflammation. And like, it was just really like, um, you know, like the Rocky montage, mm -hmm. um, like where he's training or there's a movie with Steven Stagall where he's like healing himself and rebuilding. It was like, you know, I look back with fondness now mm. because that was such a like potent learning and transformation period. Well, you were in the fire. Like in the hero's journey, you were going through 100%, it. Yeah. 100%. Did you realize, I'm curious, at the time, did you realize that was what was happening? I mean, this would have just been your life. Like at the time, did you have the presence of mind to say, this is going to be a period of my life. This isn't going to be my life forever? Or was it like, no, okay. I didn't have that sense. I mean, because I, I didn't know if I was going to get better, you know? I mean, some 22 hours a day, uh, you know, you read a lot of... <laughs> You know, I was reading on the chat rooms and internets, and, you know, there are people that, like, you know, they're for they're 20 years mm. Florida, and a lot of people get hooked on opiates and stuff, and the back is such a central thing, uh, so, um, but I didn't, I didn't sort of get into fear, I, I, I really was like, all right, like, my, my mindset was like, like, everything else goes away, like, I'm just going to make the best of this, this is where I am, mm. like, how can I get better and better each day, I mean, I went from being able to walk, like, 100 meters, to being able to walk in that year, like, I would just, all I would do is walk, ab exercises, read, and meditate. And um, I went from being able to walk 100 meters to, like, uh, a half a mile at a time. Mm. So I was walking, like, five to seven miles a day, just 
you know, periodically. And so I went from being able to stand for five minutes to like stand for, I don't know, 30. And yeah. then when I started to stretch and strengthen and stuff, that took it to the next level. So I think it was like, once I started to do the alternative stuff, it was another two years. Oh. But, um, so needless to say, my, my, that was in my young 20s. So, you know, it forced me to really grow up and mature a lot faster. Um, and you mentioned a mentor came into your life. Was that the person who mentioned the alternative stuff? Uh, well, he's, he, like, showed me this stretching thing. Okay. Um, so, but, but it was just like, and he also, I remember him talking about organic food. So then I went and researched it. And I, I just changed that one, like, I changed in one day. Yeah. Like, there's this capacity, there's this experimenter inside that, that like, he, he's curious and he'll try different things and he can kind of make changes very easily. Mm. So I'm, I'm grateful for that part. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of resistance. It's sort of like, I mean, you said in the fire, it was like, you know, I think when the, when the situation's so extreme, there's sort of like uh, not wasting of light, not wasting of energy. Yeah. It's sort of like a really clear desire to get better and... Um, which we might talk later of, like, the evolutionary process and, and sort of resistance. To that yeah, process. I'm interested in hearing from you about that because it seems like th- that there was almost like a forced challenge. Well, it wasn't For almost. Sure. There was a forced challenge <laughs> put in your life that yeah. you had to overcome. And it seems to me like part of the journey of the masculine is something like that. But for a lot of the men in our culture, they don't have a forced challenge. There is no... You know, I mean, yes, we have a military and some people go to war, right. but many, 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 many don't. Right. Whereas in ancient cultures, that was one of the rites of passage. Like now you go off and you actually fight and yeah, you yeah. learn about yourself and about sure. men and teamwork and just yeah, and everything. Ta- integrity and responsibility. All that stuff, yeah. which we don't have anymore. So it seems like in modern masculinity, like what – I'm curious, like where do you see men facing that challenge? For For the men that I see, it's that they're struggling with – women are dating or something around that and they're in so much pain about it that they're finally like, I need to do something about this. Yeah. But that's not the same as like a huge well, like, no, like <laughs> life-altering interview. Like you said earlier before, the, the hero's journey, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I think that that call is the first... Well, the sen- there's the sensing of something more. And so... Um, and then there's like hearing the call and then we have to accept the quest. So... I think for a lot of... So we're asking the question of, like, what gets people from the conventional and sort of, like, resisting growth, staying in my comfort zone, to actually, like, starting to become more open to growth. So, you know, like you said, for some people, uh, it's the frustration of, like, not knowing how to date and relate with the opposite sex. And so then, you know, some guys get into pickup, personal development through pickup. Some just hear a book, like their friend has a book, or I think podcasts are really opening people more to like personal development. I mean, I work pr- with professional development and people in organizations, so there's another medium where, whereby people realize like, hey, if I want to um, enhance my career and keep to like keep advancing, like I actually need to develop myself mm. and my interpersonal skills and my the way that I show up in the world and my executive presence. So mm. I. Th- those are my, I think those are the main ones. And I would also add, oftentimes there's pressure from the spouse, um, which I made a, I made, there was this poem that, that was written um, called She Wants to Fill You Man and she's in capital letters. 
And really, it's the metaphor that life is really beckoning us to grow, although sometimes it seems like our boss, our friends, our coach, mentor, and or our spouse, girlfriend, or wife, like, are nagging us, criticizing us, beckoning us to grow. But I think that the, the more we're resisting, the more we're going to experience it as them kind of, like, nagging us. And the more, like the more that that evolutionary impulse gets turned on and we're sort of like paddling with the stream of life that wants to evolve through us, the less that it, like, the more that it feels like life is asking us to evolve Mm. and the less that we sort of take it personally from the other people. It's sort of like, you know... Yeah, this is my this is my sense. Yeah, and I'm I'm imagining that you weren't always like that. <laughs> like there's there's a perspective. I think I would I would say personally on my journey, like same thing in my early twenties. I experienced it as like I wish my boss would get, just get off my fucking back. <laughs> like it's annoying. It's frustrating. It's not. Um, it's not helping me. Like I had a closed perspective and then once kind of like, yeah, leave me alone or like, why can't you just be nice to me? Like, I feel like mine had like a little bit of like a whiny quality of like, oh, why can't you just be nice? Like, why can't you just be, be sweet to me? And then after I started doing growth work, which I'd say I started for real when I was 24, then when situations happened, I would say, hmm, what is my part here? Which is pretty different than, like, I wish my boss would just stop getting, like, stop annoying me. Like, it's like, what is my part here? And that was the first, like, step for me, at least, of of saying, like, there's probably a reason this is happening. Like, there's probably a spiritual reason this is happening. Yeah. And what's my part? That was, like, the starting point. And then I have, a, you know, got a wider and wider lens. Yeah. And now I feel similar to what you just said, which is I feel like, Life is telling me something. So it's not just this situation with my housemates. It's like, what is life trying to get me to to see? Which is pretty different, but it's not, I think, where a lot of people start, right? Like, did you go on a journey of that, too? Or were you... Because you said you always kind of had a sense from when you were young. That what? That life was speaking to you, kind of. But then you also mentioned the the moment of being like, I don't really need anybody. (laughs) Yeah. Right before I mean, you got it, cut we, down. You know, we start from, from an end. We, we were born as infants and we grow. Um, can you ask that question in a different way? I guess I'm just wondering, were you always mature enough to see big obstacles and challenges as life showing you what to grow into? Or was there a time when you just experienced them as irritating and annoying? <laughs> I can't find it, but apparently my mom used to write this card for us. <laughs> And, um, or, you know, and it was sort of like, I mean, it was really probably beautiful principles of empathy and listening and communication and stuff. And, you know, I remember she would just say, like, go read your card, you know. And, you know, it was like teaching to be considerate of others. Um, so it definitely didn't didn't come like that, that naturally. <laughs> okay. I don't know. The, the one thing that I will say is uh, there's, like, there's this sort of, like, integrity or truth meter that when when somebody speaks something and it's right, like even if they're calling me out, I've even as a kid there was sort of like a like that's right, that's true, mm. you know, like there was this objectivity. Um, I mean, I remember like she would be saying the things and I get, like, you know, even though maybe like I was off, I was wrong, I was acting out. 
there was some part of me that's like, yeah, you know, this is true what she says. Mm. Like, I need to work on that. She meaning your mom, mom or, oh, that, your mom, in okay. context, you know. I mean, that's just a, a parent trying to, like, help their kids go be through nice. the developmental yeah. process and be nice yeah. to each other. Yeah, be kind to um, siblings, learn but, to share. But I think that whatever that thing is, like, continue to help me. I mean, I remember in some early relationships in my 20s, like, I mean, I didn't have any emotional intelligence at all. And, uh, you know, I remember a partner, like, it's like, like, I can't, some, something about, like, um, uh, like, I was stoic and, like, like, do you, do you have any emotions? Like, I can't feel, I want to feel you. And then, but I really felt her, like, I want to feel you, you know, like, felt her heart and, and it got through to me. And again, it was like, yeah, like, she's right. I, I can feel like, you know, it just feels hard. Um, and I remember that, that, but that, the way she said it, like, with so much care, it really got to me. So I remember, like, reading books. I read Daniel Goleman's Emotional Intelligence and the Sedona Method. I started going to workshops and, like, once I set my mind to it, then it was like, all right, like, this is possible. Like, I think of everything as a skill. Hmm. And so skills are learnable. And, you know, I think people block themselves by saying, oh, you know, this is just how I am. And I see, like, potential, like, our past traumas, our current gifts, strengths, superpowers, competencies. And then within that, everything's a skill that's hmm. learnable within, you know, the human hardware. That's, like, that's why I say I work with human potential like because I see the possibility and then I love breaking down the steps like how do I do this this like a b c d and I think for men like it's really helpful I mean playing sports you know like we need to know how to execute the play so you say okay first you're going to start here then and then your body's in this position and here da, 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 da. Like if you're like as a defender against a wide receiver okay like you're starting here in a low stance and then you're, you're backpedaling and then you're keeping your weight low in the center of gravity like it's really easy for us to track that when, when the things are broken down. But here we're, as, you know, from the time we're young, we're told, you know, boys don't cry, toughen up. And so then we learn to, like, really, when we get into the domain of emotions, it's really hard for us because here we've had our whole lifetime and we've sort of been taught to be stoic. Um, and then oftentimes when we do get into vulnerability with our partner as she's wanting to feel us, then it's the young parts that come up. Mm. So it then we're sort of in a or we have a past emotion from the past that hasn't been sort of processed yet. So we're we're in really a bind because then she wants to feel us, but then when we come up, we we contract into a little boy mm. or into like younger emotional states, and then that loses the polarity. So she either has to mother us or it kills the the sexual polarity of masculine and feminine. If so. You know, it's really, we, we're, there's a real bind and we don't know what to do. So the tendency is for us to just either like stay hard and stoic. What's your experience with that? Um, yeah, that's, that feels, that feels true. I'm, I, I'm, in terms of like the bind, like I've definitely experienced, I'm thinking of one past partner where, yeah, it felt like he could, he, it was hard for him to be, be vulnerable. Yeah. And, when he did it, it was, it was young, like you said. It wasn't. It was. It was like a new skill. It was sure. exactly what you said. It was really new, and so it was awkward. Yeah. And he, he didn't really know how to say it, and it right. it, it it was hard. Yeah. It was difficult. I mean, imagine. Go ahead. No, you. Go I was ahead. just gonna say, like, imagine I've never done anything for 20, 30, 40 years. 
then all of a sudden you're asking me to do this thing. Like, it's like use eat with my left hand. If I've never done it once in my life, it's very awkward. Mm-hmm. And that, I think what I heard the loudest was your woman said, I can't really feel you. I yeah. want to feel you more. Mm-hmm. And the way she said it, First of all, the way she said it was inviting. She wasn't shaming yeah. you or criticizing That's you. Right. So it, it didn't bounce off That's of right. the hardness. It That's got right. in because there was softness mm-hmm. that it was delivered with, which is important. Um, but also, you it's what you said about the mindset. You were like, I want to get better at this. Yeah. I want to get better at this. Instead of like, well, screw you. Like, I don't know how to do that. Like, I, you got to accept me as I am. I don't, you know, like, it was like, oh, this is something I can get better at. Yeah. So you got some books about emotional intelligence and you went to workshops and you got some help around it. And that's kind of, I mean, this is now part of what you do Mm -hmm. for a living. And it's why I think what you do is so important because I really feel for those guys Mm -hmm. that are like, I don't know how to do this. Like, I don't even really know what it means when a woman says, I want to feel you more. They're like, what the fuck? I'm right here. I'm right fucking here. Like, what does that mean? Like, they don't even know what it means. They're just like, ah. And so, um, I want to hear more about that, of, like, part of the emotional intelligence in both masculine and feminine, part of it is presence. You can't really be emotionally intelligent if you're not present to what's actually happening in yourself and the other person. Mm-hmm. So it it seems to me like presence is one of the central, like, parts of what you teach and do and are and provide for people and you know, facilitate around. And so is that when you were on your journey of getting more emotionally intelligent, is that what you came to? You were like, the core of this is presence. Yes. And I was also curious, the like, what was the same about, you know, we talk about like um, a star entertainer on stage has a powerful presence, right? You've seen executives with a powerful presence. <clears throat> There's many healers uh, therapists, lovers, um, like close friends where you have like a really beautiful rapport and connection and intimacy. And there's a, there's a relational presence we experience there. And then there's the spacious open awareness that, that spiritual teachers point to. Mm. So my curiosity was like, well, what's, there's gotta be a, there's gotta be a unifying principle between all these three things. And so I think presence has three faces to it. I think there's one quality of being really deeply embodied that I, and what that means is I can feel my feet on the ground. I can feel my body and legs and all the way through that I can feel my breath and it's more relaxed and open. And then the center of my chest is soft and open, Hmm. the muscles. So I can be powerful and strong and really powerfully inhabit my body, but then I can, I can actually sense and then the, the skin or the tissue, like I can actually feel with it instead of it being numb or really hard. So that's when I'm really impa- inhabiting my body and instrument. And then there's a quality of like relational presence, like there's sort of attunement, which means sensing the needs and states of myself and other, mm. then I can listen. So I, with listening, I actually have to relax my body so my mind can relax and I can be able to receive what the other person is articulating verbally, what they're expressing emotionally, what they're expressing energetically and through their body language. So if I have so much static going on in my own system, like I actually can't 
partake in their experience, the totality of the experience. So that's why embod like presence has these again these three faces. In order for you to listen with presence, I have to be relaxed and really grounded in inhabiting my body. So then it's more quiet. And I can take in and feel you. So then there's, you know, heart connection and communication. There's sort of authentic relating components. I know you appreciate that. Um, you know, there's sexual polarity. There's the energetics of, of connection. And all of this is, I think, in the domain of, of presence and in those in the relational. And then there's this quality of sort of awareness, sometimes spoken as mindfulness. But but that's, enough, like, that's the more advanced component of presence. But I think just helping people really be able to feel their body, you know, feel their breath, um, goes a long way to like helping their partner feel them and actually feeling more relaxed and feeling themselves. Yeah. <clears throat> it's also related to general attractiveness <laughs> in the masculine. Like the like I was reflecting on this today in preparation for this that so much of the game uh related to women is like women can feel men before they even open their mouth. Like your presence is part of what you're bringing to the encounter. And so it's foundational because it's like, it's like a, it's like a hack to attraction basically. Like if you're present, if you're a present grounded man in his body yeah. in the bar, like I'm going to notice you, right. like you're, <laughs> you're going to stand out. Yes, well. exactly. So it's almost like a hack to, to that. Yeah. And also, like you said, emotional intelligence and, Part of the reason I want to talk to you is because in my work with men, what I find is that a lot of the guys that I work with are in their heads yeah. most of the time. Sure. I'd say 90% of the time sure. they're in their heads. They're in their heads before a date, during a date, mm-hmm. after a date, and then they're reflecting on like what I should have said, what I could have done. Right. Like So they're still in their heads. So yeah. in the work that we do, most much of the work is about embodiment yeah. and presence, and yeah, that's sure all of what you do with people basically. And so I, I wanted to hear more about that because I feel like kind of like you said, like with pickup, there's, there's a lot of stuff out there that's sort of like get you in your head more, like learn these lines or do, you know what I mean? I never did that and I never really resonated. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't really work. Like it's, it, and part of the reason is the head thing instead of going straight to embodied practice. Right. I mean, I mean, I I can't speak fully because I don't know a lot about the field, but, but I, I mean, some of it is sort of teaching canned lines. Some of the pickup scene. Yeah, yeah, which, yeah. I mean, it works on some level, but I'm more interested in developing humans and activating their greater potential. So, you know, I'm re- I hope people are actually embodying the skills in themselves. So, yes, what you said is some peop- some guys are more in their head. You know, I mean, there's there's different archetypes. So you might have somebody who's really, you know, they're naturally in their physicality and then maybe they need to actually develop more, more heart and consideration for others, or maybe they need to develop their mind and perspective taking and awareness. So they might like start off with really physicality and you might be on a primal level attracted to them, but there's no depth there or you don't actually feel connected to them. And then you have might have other people and they're really intellectually inclined and they're like, you know, they have an amazing conversation, but you don't like, there's not a, the the part that feels really safe with the primal protector or like the the if they're not in it if they don't inhabit their body deeply and there's not like their energy sexual energy is not open then you you know there's not that the sexual attraction and the polarity there so everybody's sort of like you know it's kind of like a video game character where everybody gets certain attributes to start Mm. and then you know which ones are we developing? Mm. Are we open to developing some of those that don't come so easily to us? So I, I work a lot with experiential stuff. I do men's groups, so we do a lot of role-playing and experiential stuff. But, you know, some guys really need to, like, 
build more testosterone and like lift weights and do high intensity stuff and, you know, hit sledgehammers and do CrossFit or, or do martial arts and boxing. And, and other guys like need to actually do authentic relating and, or do attachment healing and like, you know, open to more secure connection bonding. Um, other people need to like meditation, I think is a great practice for all of us. Cause I think that's the number one thing to really deepen presence. Um, so there's, there's, we're so lucky in a way that there's so, we're at a time in history where we have access to so many developmental tools and technologies, but you know, we need to, it's almost like a prescription, like what quality do I want to embody? And then what are the best resources to help me do that in the fastest way? Yeah. And that's part of where I think someone like you or a coach or someone, a mentor or somebody can help because if it feels overwhelming, like, I don't really know where to start, then a lot of times we don't start. Yeah. <laughs> like, ah, uh, and we just we just keep doing what we've been doing. Um, one of the things I noticed in your work is you talk about social ease mm-hmm. and helping people with social ease. Mm-hmm. And I'm imagining that's people who have social anxiety mm-hmm. coming for that. Can you speak a little bit? Because I think that's very related to interacting with the feminine or feeling like a lot of the guys that I work with, they get blown out by beautiful women and they yeah. they they many of them will kind of like lean back like oh she wouldn't be interested I'm just gonna lean back like they don't go and pursue sure. her and I think some of that does have to do with the same circuits of social anxiety how do you work with somebody with that particular yeah I mean I really work with like anatomy and where their attention is so I kind of sense where somebody has their attention um you know and a lot of times guys have it in their head so um or at least some people that struggle relationally mm-hmm. so um, you know, again, it's helping them do things in experiential role-playing dynamics, but, you know, they might also have them doing practices. So they might also, you know, be doing practices to help them inhabit their physicality, like martial arts, in in conjunction with helping them learn to meditate mm. so they can relax their attention and not get so hooked in their thoughts. But then then they put those things, two things together and they learn to open their heart. You know, they can practice on something like heart math where they're practicing, you know, heart-focused breathing and learning to soften this and open their heart. So you put those three things together, and then you teach them to, like, really powerfully ground it and inhabit their body, and then move towards. Mm. And then just stay there and breathe. A lot of times people, you know, from an authentic relating perspective, some of the best questions or conversations emerge from presence and silence. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people keep their attention out of their body, up in their mind, and they're trying to mentally think of something. And, you know, this feels like silence is not awkward in and of itself. But if I'm up in my head trying to think and then I feel anxiety, the, the feeling of the anxiety is what feels awkward. Actually, like presence is where we can experience intimacy and connection. Mm. So there's a real beauty to that. And then the question emerges, like, oh, I'm curious about da-da-da-da. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. Every time I'm facilitating a games night or anything uh, and we do a question-asking exercise, I will have people, like, close their eyes and I'll say, let go of whatever question you had prepared and just breathe and trust that a question will emerge. It will. It will. Just trust me. And that's trust. really hard. For it's so hard, especially yeah. for, I think, men who have lived in their heads for so long. And so I just wanted to go back to, like, if you had a guy who did, like, have trouble in, in this area and you were working with him, you work one-on-one with people. And in groups, yeah. And in groups. One-on-one. So let's say you're working one-on-one with him. And couples. Singles, single men. Like, so men, women, couples, and men's groups. Okay. 
if you were working with a guy who came to you with presenting with whatever, like I get really awkward around the girls that I like. I'm in my head all the time. Yeah. What do I do? What would you do with him in a session? Because I feel like the way you work is interesting. Um, well, I mean, I would be doing, I would be like working with his system and helping him like feel more relaxed just with me, just okay. with presence. So there, like, it wouldn't be, it would indirectly be happening. And then I would might ask him questions, have him notice certain things, like, oh, wow, did you feel that relaxation or more? Like, is your mind more quiet? He's like, oh, wow, well, yeah. Okay, is your breath more open and relaxed? So, you know, I, I get him to realize how, how much, I mean, the latest research is actually in mindfulness. The more we can feel our body, the quieter our mind is. So, by yeah, I mean, but you can read that, but until you experience it. So yes. I really work with presence. So I really help people to actually get that felt experience. So now they know, they can sort of hashtag it. Like mm. the nervous system says like, oh, that's possible. Oh, that's what that feels mm. like. Um, so then, you know, I would, f- so then we would do role playing too. Like, like, do you pretend you're a cute girl? I can. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I'm cute, but. Oh, Johnny, don't underestimate yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so you would be like, all right, pretend I'm a girl that you like. I mean, I do all and, kinds of role playing. Okay. Sure. Because okay. I don't, I mean, I, I ask questions to help them find the answers inside themselves and create experiential scenarios so their nervous system can actually get to practice that. From my experience, that's so much faster transformation. I mean, the latest research of neuroscience is talk therapy. You know, it's very, very slow. It's so slow. And it's it so slow. It doesn't integrate the whole brain. And if there's trauma in the body, it doesn't get it. So I know people that they can talk their whole story. They've been doing psychotherapy for 10 years. I'm not to say the whole thing. I don't want to dismiss it. There's some really good integrative psychotherapists. But, you know, I have a, a psychotherapist friend, and she was she was telling how she was in, in training. They were like, okay, that's emotion. Like, get them back up in their head. You know, that's an ab reaction. Ab reaction. Yeah. <laughs> Meaning, like, that's a bad thing. They're having a bad reaction. Like... No, oh my god, they're having a feeling. We've got to get them back into their thoughts. But they don't. But like, if if somebody wants to experience attraction, that is a hundred percent feeling and emotion and energy and embodied experience. So by just talking mentally, I'm actually training my nervous system to be less human, mm. less embodied, and then less connected with others. Mm. That's another bind. Yeah. So basically, what you're saying is when you're in in a session with a client, you're not spending tons of time like, oh, like how's it been for you? Or spending a lot of time. You're like, okay, let's pretend that you're with a cute girl and see what happens to your body. And then tracking what happens to their body and having them pay attention. Like, well, is that how it works? At the beginning, I, we, when we first meet, we establish like four or five developmental objectives. And so I usually work 10 sessions with people. So we're going to start with those and every the beginning of every session that's going to be our goals that mm. helps keep it on track and then we're going to measure at the end like how much we embodied those mm. so that keeps us kind of like direct focused and directed is social ease would that be one of the oh, five sure. okay yeah, yeah, cool yeah. so social um, ease i want to feel more, more confident, confident. And, and, and powerful in my body might be another one okay so um so then we would check in like so then we make practices also that help them build those skills that they do outside sessions. of session right. yeah so the beginning will often like remind of the objectives. We'll check in on like how their life and week has been going. Did anything else come up? We'll check in on their practices, and then the rest of the time will either be like 
working with presence in the body and kind of healing stuff, or we'll be doing role playing. Mm. And you mentioned healing stuff. I, in my experience with the guys, there's trauma often attached, um, to the feminine, which is part of why they don't really feel safe around women. Mm. How do you work with something like that? And yeah, feel free to use examples. Well, I mean, at first I want to say again, like, you know, as an athlete, as a kid and as a consultant, like, you know, you're always working like what works. And so there was a, there's an, there's a, like a consummate practicality in, in consulting, like you're, you're really researching the industry, researching other organizations, and then finding, you know, what are the best practices? Of course, there's uniqueness and you want to honor people's uniqueness, but you say, Hey, you know, this has been like a thousand times. This is tried and true. And this really works. Yeah. So I think that helps save us time. And it's just like this infinite field and you got to try uh, uh, 10,000 things we say hey well these five things tend to work for a lot of people yeah so let's try one and see how it works for you mm. you may not like it okay let's try the second thing oh wow that really works well mm. so you know there's always like looking for the patterns and themes and trying to like extract what are the best practices and what's the fastest way like right what's the like, fastest way for this person to yeah. get to where they want to go yeah there's yeah. a hacker you know, and I always like check, like, okay, try this on for yourself. I really respect people's autonomy, so mm. okay, try this. And then they come back and no, that didn't work. Okay, okay, let's yeah. try this. And then that's the thing. So, um, because there is this mindset of like what really works, and there's sort of a natural, healthy skepticism. I had a master's in psychology, and like <clears throat> at the point I was deciding, do I want to go do my PhD and become a like you know clinical psychologist, like. I, I was really thinking, like, does this, this talk therapy, like, you know, for some people, okay, they have shifts and stuff, but, like, you know, I feel like there's something more. You know, and I already, I was already getting into a lot of, like, body practices, like martial arts and tai chi and meditation, qigong. So I, I was like, you know, there's got to be something with the body. So I ended up doing a, a instead of doing my PhD, I got a, ma- um, I did a developmental coach training for two years. Mm. So I, I basically made my own program, what, what I thought really worked. And, you know, I really, I, I worked, I've done a lot of training in trauma and I really work with that. Um, we've all had varying degrees. I think a lot of people think of trauma as like PTSD and like, okay, I wasn't a war veteran and I haven't been sexually abused. I mean, a lot of people have. But, yes. But I want to say, you know, there's trauma with a big T and that what all of us have trauma with a little T, you know, that's like, oh, my, my first girlfriend in sixth grade cheated on me. You know, and then my heart still like is affected and can fully open in love because I have this wound. You know, there's a great book um, called Your Body Keeps Score, New York Times bestseller by a Boston psychiatrist and, and psychotherapist and like really researcher 30 years, like working with tens of thousands of people. So, again, he's just not a theorist. And the book, as the title describes, Your Body Keeps Score, um, what it says is, again, talking about stuff doesn't release it. I mean, how many times have you? Had a, you, t- you had something that bothered you, and then you ha- you tell three of your friends on the phone, and it still bothers you. <laughs> you know? So, you know, that was another thing. Like, I was noticing, like, wow, I mean, myself, or like, wow, this person, my friend, just told three people. I heard her. And she was telling the same story. And then she's telling me, and she's still like, so triggered. I was like, well, that doesn't work. So I'm like, again, the hacker is like, well, what really works? And I'm like, oh, okay. so I read all these books and then I find the Sedona method. Okay. Oh, I find EFT tapping. Okay. I find somatic experiencing. So again, I'm like really studying what's possible. What's out there mm-hmm. trying and that doesn't work. Oh, that works good for that. So that's how I, that's how I kind of. So your work is an amalgam of all of the, 
all of the trainings and all of the right. everything. And so what you're doing is you're tracking and attuning to that specific person's nervous system and what is called for in this moment. Right, because one client might be, you know, a senior manager in an organization and they want to work, you know, they're married, they have kids, they're good on the home front, but they want to work on uh, productivity, prioritization, executive presence, and sort of effective communication. So that, that those are different goals. Mm-hmm. But let's say I have somebody else. You know, they're 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 kind of more in they're they're in tech. They're really in, intellectually inclined. They're super smart. They you know they don't feel so confident that their their body feels weak. Um, they want their struggling relationship. They want to feel more like confident and and really you know and sexy and sexy. So then that particular person, we might work on helping them feel more power and mm-hmm. confidence in their body. And when you're doing that, are you coming across the kinks in the system where right. they don't feel safe in a certain, like, for example, expressing sexual interest? I feel like that's a huge block for a lot of the guys I work with. Like, there's like a like a contraction or like a kink around, like, yeah. being... I mean, well, I, I feel so... I'm already sensing what's happening in their body. Yeah. So when that's closed down, then I, you know. Then you can sense it. Right. And how do you how do you work with something like that? And and I have so many questions for you. I'm going to try to <laughs> try to slow them down. But basically, like, are you finding patterns in this kind of like? Are you finding that often there's a fill in the blank? For example, I've noticed a little pattern of a lot of the men that I work with had um, like cold moms. Or there was some kind of, like, they weren't getting a physical affection or touch or um, emotional presence as kids, which, like you said, you wouldn't necessarily identify as big T trauma. They weren't beaten. They weren't sexually abused. But there was, like, a lack of, of there was yeah. kind of, like, neglect. Yeah. I work it, a lot with bonding and connection. So yeah. That, that's a common thing that I work with. Is that, do you find that that's common for what I just described about men who are working on, like, owning their sexual presence? Do you find that? that's a pattern you've seen too or not really um i mean it could be many things so i I always ask questions to check i mean sometimes there's an emasculating mother sometimes the mother wasn't emotionally present sometimes the mother was being sexually inappropriate and so they turned off their sexuality Mm. um you know sometimes there was sexual abuse um sometimes the parents never modeled that so they didn't see it um you know maybe they got shut down in high school Mm -hmm. and then they just stopped being um you know, there's there's a range of things. So with that particular thing, I don't see just one pattern. But I, I mean, yeah, you could probably map it out. Maybe there's six or seven. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, I would be so see? fascinated to map that out. I would love to, I would love to see that map. Cool. Let's make that map. Cool. I would like to make that map. Okay. <laughs> but let's say, um, I guess what I'm wondering is if you know. Can I say one thing? Yes, please. So, <laughs> I want to say. You know, convent, like psychotherapists, they're, they're good at diagnosing and pathologizing. What I'm interested in is helping your system restore its natural function. So I'm only interested in what happened in, in the sense that your, your nervous system can feel and release that and actually then like naturally turn on again. Mm-hmm. And that's where we get like what I was saying before, human potential. Like I see everybody as whole and like they have their human potential. But sometimes they had a kink mm-hmm. or there's a limiting belief or something where somebody else negatively affected them or sometime where they're suppressing themselves. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just interested in helping turning that back on. Yeah. So it works. Right. Because in, in a session, if someone had a, some kind of 
memory or something. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of a guy friend who had this moment when he was 15 where he um, he went to a friend's house and the, the friend's mom gave him a hug when he left. Yeah. And he had a moment of realizing, like, I can't remember when my mom has ever hugged wow. me. And, and, and at the time, like, he was 15, so he had enough awareness to be like, mm. that's weird yeah, or, or yeah. that's off or something, right? And yeah. this was, like, a moment for him. Yeah. And let's say that that was, like, a contraction moment. If you were working with him, like, would you help his body relax 100%. as that memory was happening again yeah. kind of thing? Okay. I mean, I experience people like, like uh, the iPhone Safari uh, history windows. Okay. So, you know, here there's the skin and the bones on the outside. Uh But then, you know, when he was telling that, I would be feeling the state underneath. Mm -hmm. And then I would ask him if that's what's happening for him. And then we maybe feel it for 30 seconds or a minute, and then it releases. What I find is these windows are looping. Mm -hmm. And so there's that state. So, you know, there might be the the sadness, and we feel that for 30 seconds. And then there's the deep longing, because some part of him knows that that's a natural thing of being human. So then we would help feel that, and then his nervous system would really kind of metabolize and release that. And then what we're also doing is helping the heart to open so he can rewire, like, no, that's a possible experience that I can have. Because what Mm. we tend to do is either, like, we tend to replay or attract the similar painful experiences, or we just avoid them altogether. So there's a a compulsive replaying out, sometimes it happens to sexual trauma, Mm -hmm. or this is no, like, I never want to feel that again, I'm going to avoid that. Yeah. So I really, again, go and meet their, meet their nervous system in, in the moment, and then find that that wants to be felt and integrated. Again, the body keeps score. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of metabolized and released. So what I love is that people always feel, leave feeling so relaxed and open. And I, I tell them, like, you can always expect to feel really, you might feel integrating, but you're never going to leave like, oh, I was just talking about this stuff and I feel all stirred up and I'm mm. confused. You know, because I work so much with the body and safety and relaxation. You know, then they feel good. Mm. And so I think it, like, they're, they're doing deep work and it's actually creating changes in their lives, which we can tangibly track. But, you know, after a session, they feel good and relaxed and at peace and they say yeah I am I'm feeling more connected to my wife or mm. yes like wow I feel way more sexually powerful well my voice feels deeper I can speak for more depth so you know they can like feel the changes which I like as a practical like a practical person is is important to me yeah because you you want to get in there and get some work done and mm-hmm. have them have their lives actually sure, function let's not talk about this better for years, you know? yeah I um I want to highlight that because when I was in New York City, I was working to stop sexual abuse in the Jewish community. I was working for an organization, and I was doing a lot of research at the time because I really wanted to know what works. Mm -hmm. And the feedback I was getting from people was like talk therapy. The feedback I was getting from people was there was a plateau. That it was helping, and then there was a plateau. And they were still experiencing the nightmares. They still had raging social anxiety. They still had... The, the symptoms of post-traumatic yeah. stress disorder. And so I, you know, did a ton of research. I was like, mm-hmm. well, if this isn't working, yeah. what does work? And that's how I came to somatic therapy. All, yeah. the, all the somatic therapies. And somatic therapy, for those of you who don't know, just means therapy that involves the body, that you're not just talking about things. So all the things that um, Johnny mentioned, somatic experiencing, EMDR, EFT tapping. EFT tapping. All of these are somatic therapies, and there's evidence-based, you know, research on each one of them. 
but the the overall conclusion that I have come to from working with people with big T trauma is some of that somatic therapy must be included mm-hmm. to actually release the charge and to help the nervous mm-hmm. system deeply relax the way that you're describing. Um, I'm, I'm going to drop that book, The Body Keeps the Score, in the show notes because it's probably the most respected book I have heard of in the field on somatic therapy for those that are interested. Um, but that's one thing that I just wanted to highlight was there's something deep, there's something deeply um, efficient mm-hmm. about this stuff. There's a reason that people like you and me mm-hmm. have come to it, which yeah. is like when we see people suffering, we don't want them to suffer for another decade. Right. Like what is going to work? Yeah. Like what's actually right. going to work? What's going to help yeah. you have the kind of sex you want to have or have yeah. the kind of relationship you want to have or be the kind of manager you want to be? Yeah. It's not just going to be talking about it. Yeah. It's going to be doing this kind of thing. Yeah, totally. Um, one, there's a, in EFT tapping, there's a thing called uh, a subjective, like a, an index of how, how much subjective intensity there is, how much charge. Mm. So when you think about the event, how much charge is in your body? So you can take an event with seven, eight, nine charge and in the course of 30 to 60 minutes, desensitize it so they are completely relaxed. They feel happy again. They think about it. There is absolutely no charge. Yeah. You check again the next week. It's still no charge. You check a month later, six months later, no charge. So it's super empowering that actually I can take this event that for my whole life has bothered me or constantly comes up and invades my thoughts and I just try to take it away, but it still negatively affects me in my life. And then in 30 to 60 minutes, it's gone. Yeah, and to be clear, a lot of the times, like, an event that's happening now or has happened recently, like, I'm thinking about um, some of my guys when they when they go on a date and they feel like they made a mistake of some kind mm-hmm. and then they're looping on it. Right. Sometimes if you're tapping or you're doing this kind of work, that's actually like a like – a surface level reminder right. of something deeper, right? right? So something, a shameful experience at, you know, 27 exactly. is really like, yes, you have to work through that, but it's triggering something from when you were seven sure. a lot of the times. Sure. Yeah, I just wanted to mention that because I remember when I was doing EFT tapping, we might have a practitioner on the podcast for that. I would, like, the neural networks were really weird. Like, mm-hmm. I'd be tapping about something that happened at work and then I'd be like 11 years old and at my dad's house and, and right. then I would, it would jump to me as 17 and I'd be like, this doesn't make any logical sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in my brain map and in my body and mm-hmm. my nervous system, something was patterned around the same the same yeah, they, feeling. They're wired yeah. together. They're wired together. But you, you know, it's important to get the first or the worst because that that's lays the foundation of the neural network. Say more about the first or the worst. What does that well, mean? Well, you can start off with like, okay, I, you know, you can start off with a present time event, but you start tapping and you very quickly take them into you. You, their inner healer helps them go to the original, the original, the origin point. Yeah, yeah because that is. Basically, it's like uh, uprooting the weed like all right. the way at the root instead yeah. of just the top of the yeah. of the thing. Can I talk about sex, trauma, and confidence in sex? Oh my god, please! <laughs> um, in my own personal experience in working with clients, if people would take the f- five events from the past that they feel the most ashamed, embarrassed mm. about, or wish that didn't happen, it would it frees up and reclaims so much power and energy. It is incredible. Mm. So what I find with confidence 
is, I mean, there's a physical component because we know testosterone is the confidence hormone. So some people, like, guys got to do physicality stuff, lift weights and do martial arts or that kind of stuff if they want to have that felt sense of physicality and confidence. It's just, it's a physical thing. But in terms of the, the subtle energy and the psychology of it, experiences from the past where we feel shame, really, it's almost like it can loop around our core and really have us feel not good enough and, and like it really saps our confidence. So if people would just clear some of those events from the past where they felt shame, I mean, growing up, I had a difficult time looking people in the eyes. Mm. I mean, it was like inside I said, well, if they don't, if I don't look too long, then they can't see inside me and they won't see these things that I'm ashamed of yeah. myself. You know, and I, I mean, I'm... Now I now that's not a problem. <laughs> but I will say that that was a big that was a big thing for me of like clearing those experiences from the past where the that there was shame that there was still a felt sense of shame in my body. And then the other thing is developing competence. So the more we practice and have experiences, then the more competence that we build. Mm -hmm. So I think confidence has a threefold piece. One, there's the physicality and they're making healthy testosterone levels. Two, it's clearing some of the big shame experiences from the past. And three, it's develop, practicing and developing mm. confidence. And that really changes people's experience of themselves and their body and the way that they relate and their sense of confidence in the world. And to be clear, like a shame experience for a man could be premature ejaculation. For or, sure. or yeah, getting my name on the board in third grade. Yeah. You know, and get it, the teacher shamed me. Yeah. Or my mom made a comment at the table at dinner when I was eight. Like, those, you, you, you just you ask their system, like, what's, is there something I regret, I wish didn't happen? You know, what was the worst experience I've ever had? Mm -hmm. And if they're relaxed and safe, it'll come up. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That's really important because I think a lot of kind of what's out there about s sexual confidence stuff tends to focus solely on the physicality meaning right. like let's talk about the penis like it's obvious about the penis and like it's almost not really about that in the end at all yeah. uh, like you said there's some physicality mm -hmm. component but a lot of it's about the shame yeah. like whatever the shame memory is sure. and as that helps get cleared sure. then the natural vitality kind of comes back is yeah. what i'm hearing you yeah. saying yeah i mean i agreed and i would also say there's you know normal sexual function and there's advanced sexual function of like non-ejaculatory multi-orgasmic like epic epic sex and that requires that the breath be like super naturally open and deep so that the energy can really flow through the central channel all the way up and down so it doesn't get stuck in the genitals mm. And so that, again, when we have trauma that's unprocessed in the body, usually it's in the chest and the core, chest and the belly, and so that inhibits those things. <clears throat> you know, 15 years or so ago, I remember, it, like, I would have these peak states, and my breath was really relaxed and open and deep. Mm. And I felt, like, bliss or joy or expansiveness and so open, and then my breath was also really relaxed and open. But then my baseline state was really shallow, you know? And then people, you know, people in yoga class, okay, remember to breathe. Yeah, like, there was so much unconsciousness around not breathing. And what I realized, <clears throat> I did two things. I, I, I had this breath monitor that I would practice breathing while I worked because I noticed that was the place where the most unconsciousness. So I just trained myself to 
constantly be aware of my breath and be looking over mm. and see how many breaths per minute. Now they have a thing called Spire, which is more efficient and hooks on your belt. And it can send you notifications when your breath is more shallow. So mm. that's a great trainer for that. But I also noticed that, that there was some trauma um, and some like kind of experiences from the past that were really kind of creating a stuckness in my breath. Mm. Um, one, of the, one of those somatically healing modalities we talked about has a constricted breath technique where you go in there and you you find the breath is constricted and you f- you basically like find the experiences that are that are kind of uh impact negatively impacting that and then you just over a few sessions you can like have them experience now they experience a naturally open breath again for the first time in their life mm. and that's really empowering and that's that's an essential thing if they wanted to get into kind of the advanced sexual practices to really have that at any moment their breath can be naturally open and deep. Mm. Yeah, it reminds me of, of training, like you were saying, like weight training. Like right. you can't just go and right. be a multi-orgasmic man, right. non-ejaculatory, like tomorrow. Like there's some training that's sure. involved and like getting the whole system to be yeah, able to yeah, breathe. Yeah, yeah. And, like, For sure. Yeah. The other thing is uh, when you're urinating to like practice holding, pulling up the PC muscle, there's sort of this conventional joke in some movies. They say, oh, no, I can't stop. It stings. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> I have never heard that. You're talking about peeing? Yeah. If you, if you stop, it stings? Yeah. For guys? Like a, there's a guy's joke on this. Interesting. And it's not true. It's really <laughs> counter. But Because you have to... Pr- I mean, I remember practicing for, like, every time I would pee. I mean, I still do it sometimes just to practice, like, you that I stop in the middle of the flow. I pull up on that PC muscle, pull the energy all the way up. So it makes the pee take longer, <laughs> but then it makes the sex way better. <laughs> guys... We're going to start to wrap here, but I love that as one of our last tips. <laughs> it makes the pee way longer, but it makes the sex way better. <laughs> um, yeah, so as we start to wrap up, um, is there anything else that you want to leave the listeners with in terms of hacks to masculine presence? I'd just like to honor all of those who have come before us. And throughout the ages, the the healers and the witches and the... The inventors, the scientists, the the, the way showers, the sages, the way showers, and all those people who've devoted their lives to the evolution and healing and mm. development of humanity. And for a time, many of them had to retreat from the world and practice in hiding. For a time when we could speak these things on podcasts, we could write them in books, we could speak them publicly, and when it was safer for us to really like use our greater human potential for the good of us all. Mm-hmm. So. As much as you, the listener, like probably want to uh, be more happy and have things better in your life, and like yes, we all need to like be happy and thriving. May we remember that you're doing that. We're all doing that to wear the grooves of potential for all of us. That when you do your, when each of us does our healing and development, that it actually sends out a ripple that it makes it easier and better for all of us. When we put more love in the world, it creates more love for all of us. So, if like, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. That's what has me doing um, mm. energy practices, qigong, meditation, that, I'm, that I know that I'm part of this evolution of humanity and that this is mine to do. Mm. That's beautifully said. Yeah, I feel like that's really true in terms of consciousness, that when we do our own personal growth work, when we heal our own personal traumas, there is a healing that does happen in the collective. Mm-hmm. We call it spiritual activism, mm. that it doesn't always have to be marching around with signs. Like you, as a man, taking a step towards 
a workshop or a book or a podcast or a program or whatever it is, or even just having the ugly cry, honestly, just doing that, being present and and doing that healing work, that is serving the world and like the greater web of consciousness. So that was lovely to end with. Thank you. Um, Yeah. And I think that we'll wrap there. That wraps up another episode of Dear Men. Thank you for listening. If you want to reach out, we would love to hear from you. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Dear Men Podcast. That's at Dear Men Podcast. Or Facebook, we have a group, Dear Men Podcast. We also have an email address, dearmenpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to join the Big Sexy Dataset, the community of people who regularly respond to the surveys that we talk about on this podcast, just email us at that address, dearmenpodcast at gmail.com, and we will set you up. Have a sexy day.